no, this is this is what I want. I'm going to put my foot down on these things. Granted, it doesn't mean I'm going to say no to everything. I'm definitely going to try and help out and build this practice. Because again, it's not just about me. It's about the practice that I'm in and saying, all right, where do I want this to go? I'm Gerardo Poli. I'm Hubert Hemstra. And this is The Vet Vault. Before we kick off, just a word of thanks to our friends at Heska Australia for helping us to support you by supporting the podcast. If you've been thinking that there must be a more efficient, more cost-effective way to run your in-house labs, or you're convinced that your digital radiography can be better and easier with fewer glitches, you're probably right. Go to heska.com.au to find out what's possible. Back in my vet school days at Onestapurt in Pretoria, South Africa, in the spring and early summer, Jacaranda trees that the city is famous for would be in full bloom. The streets would be painted purple and the air would be thick with the smell of early summer rainstorms and all of those blossoms. But if you were a student, those early signs of the coming summer would also be the signal for a low-grade sense of anxiety because it would mean that your final exams would be looming and that rather than being outside enjoying spring, that you should be studying. And if you're a final year vet student, well then that would be a whole new level of anxiety. Because beyond final exams and beyond the glorious summer break that comes after those exams lay the real world. The complicated world of finding a job, finding the right job, and facing all that scary stuff that you'd heard so much about. We are releasing this episode in mid-November, during exactly this time. Back in Pretoria, the jacarandas are in full bloom and around the world, thousands of vet students are cautiously optimistic but also probably slightly shitting themselves, which is why I'm having this conversation with Dr. Mariah McCauley. Mariah is on the other side of this breakwater between vet school and the working world. One and a bit years out, still vetting, still keeping her head above water, still at her first job and mostly enjoying it, unlike many of her cohort. And despite the massive curveball that a global pandemic threw at her and her friends. But Mariah is no average new grad. Well, she is, but she has an unfair advantage. When she was a student, she started That Vet Life podcast, where she has had dozens of in-depth conversations with experienced vets about how to survive and thrive as a veterinarian. This means that she has been accumulating the skills needed to navigate this profession for a long time, unlike most of us who learn the hard way through blood, sweat, a bunch of other bodily secretions, mostly not our own, and tears. Definitely tears. While I was having this conversation with Mariah, I had this overwhelming feeling of, man, if I was half as smart and thoughtful and had my shit together, even just a little bit more like her, I would have saved myself so much grief. So, this one is for you, new and recent grads of the world, bravely facing the adventure that awaits. We review Mariah's first year in practice, what she had learned what she learned before starting practice that had helped her immensely during her first year and what she would have done differently. But it's also for you, senior vets, managers and bosses. You who will be in charge of taking care of these young vetlings and helping to shape their future careers. You need to hear what Mariah has to say about her first year out, about how she planned with the help of mentors, about what her and her classmates value, what they need, why they leave jobs and what they can bring to your business. Also, just a quick shout out to say that since we recorded this episode a few weeks ago, there have been some cool things happening for Mariah and That Vet Life. They are now a part of the VetX International family with Dr. Dave Nicole. Same name, same Mariah, but delivering the value she brings to the vet world as part of the VetX team. We look forward to great things. Please enjoy Dr. Mariah McCauley. Welcome to the Vet World. Thank you. It's great to actually be talking with you guys on the podcast. Um, I know we've been chatting about this for a while, so to officially be here, I'm like, oh, a little bit of, little bit of fandom here. <laughs> That's crazy. I've been loving listening to you, to your evolution um, of the podcast, and it's it's incredible. You've gotten really good at it. Your speech and your um, delivery of what you're doing is so good. I'm, I'm a little bit jealous, to be honest. <laughs> well, I appreciate those kind words. It's definitely been a work in progress. No, I like I never would have thought that when I was a veterinary student 
just with the idea of, hey, let's start a podcast, that it would evolve to where it is now and I'd be doing the things that I am doing and having the reach that I am through Instagram and through Facebook and through the podcast. Um, just the number of students that have reached out and veterinarians that have reached out and just the network itself, it never would have been what it is if I hadn't just jumped on it and honestly just started a podcast on in a whim. Mm-hmm. Why did you start it? What was your motivation for starting a podcast as a student? It was a little bit twofold. One of them was that the opportunity arose. There was a funding opportunity that was available through the university. And I forget exactly who it was that pointed me to it. But at the same time, I had realized that I had had a lot of good interactions with veterinarians and veterinary students. And I think I had come across like one other veterinary student podcast at the time. So I was like, this isn't a new thing. I could like find my niche in it. There's a little bit of that mm-hmm. self-service type of, of mentality. But at the same time, it's like, you know, these are some really good stories that I'm hearing. These are incredible learning opportunities. I want to share this with my peers. I want to share this with my colleagues. And what is a really easy way to do that? Podcasting. Because the setup is pretty low key. I mean, to start a podcast, you don't need a lot of fancy equipment. Granted, it, it does help to have some good audio quality and good recording equipment and editing, whatever. But at its heart, as long as you have the like the passion for it and you love storytelling and love to talk, which is partly my fault and <laughs> something that I enjoy, then starting a podcast is kind of a natural flow for it. So when I started it as a student, I was like, you know what? The opportunity is here. Let's take it. Let's see where it goes. Let's see what I'm able to develop as a result of it. And here I am, oh gosh, how many years later as a working veterinarian still having a podcast. It it just blows my mind. Yeah, it's a gift. I, I, I love it. And I love exactly that, what you're saying, where you don't know why exactly, but it's just something you feel like you have to do and, and off you go and you see where it leads. Absolutely. We'll come back to podcasting, but we want to talk about VET, but we'll let's start with the, the fun one just so the listeners can get to know you a little bit. I've done this before in the podcast where we, we have the statement. I was driving along the road once and I saw graffiti, a big graffiti on the side of a wall that said, bad decisions lead to good stories. I thought, man, that's, I love that. <laughs> I love that statement. And I actually spent about an hour thinking about, is that true or not? Is it true? And if you think, if you agree with that statement, have you got a story to back it up for us? Hmm. So is it true that bad decisions can lead to good stories? I feel like you have to have the word can in there because I feel like some bad decisions can lead to very bad stories. But also to go a little bit deeper into this, like what is the definition of a good story? Ooh, that's a whole other topic in itself. But I feel in the, for the most part, bad decisions or poorly constructed decisions can result in good stories because it takes you through twists and turns that are not expected. And that is usually what drives a a reader or a listener into a story deeper is because you went down a path that they weren't anticipating. And it, it asks the question of what's next. And like, honestly, when you listen to a story, when you read a story, if you're constantly asking yourself, well, what's next, what's going to happen next, then you're driven to listen to a little bit more. So Do bad decisions or can bad decisions lead to good stories? Yes, in most cases. Do I have a good story to follow that up? Not really. (laughs) Why? Because you haven't made any bad decisions? (laughs) Or because your bad bad decisions led to tragic outcomes? No, I think my one of the one that kind of comes to mind recently is not really a veterinary related one, but I, I guess maybe it is a little bit veterinary related, but it was the first time that I ever went lambing as a veterinary student. And I decided, you know what, the requirement is two weeks, but let's just do three and see what happens. Um, It was not the best life decision to do so. But in the end, I ended up going back three seasons in a row to the same farm because it was amazing. And I'm not really embellishing too much on the story because we would be here forever. But um, the short and skinny of it is that it wasn't the best decision to do three weeks out as a first year student on a lambing farm where you didn't know anybody. 
But in the long run, it developed some really deep connections with these farmers. I learned so much about myself and my own skills and my own strength and a new area of veterinary medicine that I never would have had an experience at if I had gone to school in the U.S. So that's the, that's the short and skinny of that story. So that was in the U.K. because you studied in Edinburgh, yep. is that right? In Edinburgh, yep. Yeah. So why was it a bad decision to go for three weeks? Just too much work or oh, you don't have to <laughs> so go? so exhausting. Yeah. And literally two days after um, I came back from this, and actually maybe it was a week after I came back from this, I had a major exam that I had not studied for worth anything. And, and, it, I and I literally it walked out of that exam bawling to my friends because I was like, I failed. That's it. They're going to kick me out of vet school because I spent too much time lambing, was not able to study for this stupid exam. Not a stupid exam, but at the time it felt very stupid. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I did pass that exam, but there was so much anxiety, so much fear and anxiety that was like in that day that it would have been a much better decision to just do the two weeks and actually take two full weeks to study for this exam and come out with a much better grade and much better outlook on my veterinary career than what actually happened. I had this conversation with somebody the other day. They, they told some story from the, the early 20s where as an adult, <laughs> you look back and you go, what the hell were you thinking? But then always those experiences that it seems that in your twenties you make decisions on a whim much easier, much more likely, and you go, "Yeah, I can do that. I can pull that off." Yeah. So you have this inherent self belief about stuff, or is ignorance. I don't know. Ignorance is bliss. And then at the time you go, "What? What? What was I thinking? This is horrendous." But then very often the the long term outcome is beneficial because it gets you mm -hmm. in situations way out of your comfort zone that a sensible 40-year-old like me would go, no, I'm not going to do that. That's just ridiculous. But, you, <laughs> but you, you sort of stumble into situations that teach you major life lessons, if it doesn't kill you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I feel like at my age, there's just a little bit less of a, a sense of self-preservation. And so we're like, yeah, let's go on that hike. Yeah, let's go skydiving. Yeah, let's go on three weeks of lambing, even though looking back on it, I'm like, that's not that big and scary of a decision, is it? But at the time, as a first year veterinary student, I was like, three weeks on a farm where I don't know these people and it could go completely sideways. Like that was scary for me at that at that stage in my life. Now I'm like, bring it on. <laughs> a little bit less fear. So you are a just more than a year out of uni now, is that right? Mm -hmm. Here in yep. a bit? I graduated June of 2020. June of 2020, so here in a bit. Still standing? Yeah, just smart. about a year and a half here now. Still I, standing, barely. Listeners can't see you, but you don't look too wrinkled or too gray. <laughs> <laughs> there are definitely some. I was actually scrolling back through my Instagram feed recently, and there was one reel that I did, and I look at it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I look terribly ill. Like, I have so many bags underneath my eyes. It's like dark gray circles, and I look gaunt for some reason. And I was like, do I look like that on the daily? Like, is that what my clients see? Is that what my colleagues are seeing? Yeah. I'm like, I really hope I don't look that sick or that ill. But I mean, it has been super hard working as a veterinarian in this stage, but especially as a new veterinarian. But I'm like, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm that bad off. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a bad hair day. <laughs> just a bad hair day. So at the round about the six months mark, you did an episode on sort of reviewing your first six months of your veterinary career. Now we're further six months on. And let's do another little quick recap. Uh, is yeah, there, let's do this. Is there anything that 12-month-old or not old, 12-month-out, 12-month-out <laughs> Mariah would tell 6-month-out Mariah? Definitely keep your head up and definitely keep pushing forward. I feel that the sixth month is kind of where you hit a little bit of a plateau in veterinary medicine, at least in your first year. Um, so those first three to six months, you're like, I'm learning. Oh, I'm failing. I'm learning a bit more. Oh, I'm failing a bit more. And then you're like, hit this little peak and you're like, yeah, here we go, man. And then you hit six months and you're like, crap, I'm stagnant. Like, where am I growing? Where am I learning? Just because you're not learning as fast or growing as fast. Yeah. Okay. So I know for myself, I think after I recorded that episode, I was like, hmm, am I, am I actually like not doing what I told everybody that I was doing? Um, am I just kind of staying stagnant? And it, it kind of continued that way. And I realized that 
looking back on it. So that 12 month looking back to the six month period, there's definitely was still a strong level of growth. It was just probably not as steep of an incline in growth, or it was more niche in the areas that I was growing and developing in. So maybe it was like a specific skill, like looking at dentistry or ultrasound or um, like cytology. So those were like the areas that were like small areas that were when you look at them and you add them up, you're like, wow, that's a lot of growth. But in the moment, it doesn't feel like you're growing. It doesn't feel like you're developing. You just feel exhausted all the time. Mm-hmm. So looking back on it as like when I was a year out looking, at, if I were to talk to my sixth month out self, I would definitely say just like keep staying the course, keep being hungry, keep being curious, because that is what is going to fuel your excitement and fuel your passion for wanting to grow further, wanting to develop so that you can look back on it and be like, you know what? I'm glad I, I didn't just sit there and kind of dwell in this stagnancy. Instead, I said, hmm, where do I want to go from here? Yeah. And so that was a, a kind of a good thing to look at. Yeah, you're right. Those first three to six months, every moment is almost a learning experience. Every, everything's mm-hmm. new. So you are learning. You don't. You have to put no effort into learn because you are just, just to survive, you have to learn all the time. But then you quickly hit that stage where you go, okay, I'm comfortable with my, with a lot of the routine stuff that's going to be my day-to-day life. I've got a quote actually about that that hit me because I, I, at my 10-year mark, I'm probably guilty of this, but I read somewhere that 10 years of experience can sometimes just be one year's experience repeated 10 times. And if I look back at the 10-year mark, I, I was a bit like that. I had I thought, oh, I'm 10 years experience, but I go, in the last five years, what have I really done to, to change it? I'm just doing the same thing over and over for 10 years. So I'm very smooth at at those things but where's the growth how, how did you stop that from happening or how do you how do you on a day-to-day basis approach to this to make sure you are still learning i think the first part of that is just actively looking at what i'm doing and saying okay like where do i want to go from here um do i want to keep learning do i want to <laughs> keep on being excited in what I'm doing. Because for me, I'm, I'm most excited and most passionate when I find something else that's exciting or something new. But then also realizing and accepting that I'm never going to be like fully knowledgeable. I'm never going to know all, know all the stuff. I'm never going to be perfect in all of my skills. There's always going to be something else to learn, always going to be something else to develop. Because like even spays, like doing doing that, you can have like five different dogs in front of you and each spay is going to go slightly differently. And you have to just accept that and be like, all right, each one is a new challenge in front of me. Each one is a new opportunity to learn something new, a new way to, to do your ligatures, a new way to put your clamps on, a new way to do anesthesia. And accepting and anticipating that you're always going to have the opportunity to learn and that you're never going to know it all. You're never going to be perfect at it. It Mm -hmm. just opens up so many more doorways to say, you know what, let's keep being curious. Let's keep going after it. Let's keep being excited about this profession that we're in. Do you pick specific topics? Like, is it a conscious decision to go, yeah, I want to get better at cytology. I'm going to commit some time to get better at this. Or, Or do you, take what comes your way and learn mm-hmm. as you go? It's a little bit of both. Um, right now, I'm in a slew of kidney disease cases. <laughs> uh, none of them are exactly the same. So I'm having the opportunity to go a lot deeper into the research behind different types of kidney disease, different treatment modalities, um, different referral options or management options. So in that respect, I'm honestly just taking something that's landed in my lap and saying, all right, what are you going to do with this? Are you going to do what you did for the last case? Or are you going to find a way that works better for this particular client and this particular animal and really build out your repertoire of what's available for the case that comes after that? Because as we all know, kidney cases just come as they, they just come every single day. So um, keeping that as an option would be the first part. And then the other part is having active decisions. Um, Part of it with when I first started my job was with my mentor and like sitting down and setting up a mentorship clause. Like we actually had something in my, uh, like an actual clause (laughs) that we wrote together that said, you know what, we're going to focus on these areas. We're going to like sit down and chat about the areas that we want to see me grow and develop in to help 
this practice and for the practice to help me. And we recently sat down again and we said, you know what, we like, did we achieve the things that we talked about three months ago? Like, was I actually developing those areas or did craziness happen and they all went by the wayside? Some of them went by the wayside just because of how practice is right now. So we sat down and had an intentional discussion to say, all right, what's the next area that we want to get better at? Like, and how can we put, like, what are the action steps to make that happen? And so one of them is ultrasound. I'd had the opportunity as cases came through to just pop a probe on there and, and honestly see what I could find and work on my skills. But now I'm at that stage where I'm like, you know what? let's actually do like, let's bring someone in, let's do a course, let's really dive into this specific area of ultrasound so that I might as a practitioner can get better. But then also so that I can teach those around me how to get better. So we're talking about like our technicians and that student that's shadowing with us or that assistant that wants to go to vet school, like these are all skills that I can then pass on to them, mm-hmm. just because I'm learning and I'm growing and I'm being intentional about my decisions to grow and develop in those areas. I'm going to interrupt you for a second to remind you about our clinical series of podcasts. I told another vet about it the other day and she said, oh, I love the vet vault, but I didn't know you guys did clinical stuff, which makes me think that like me, you probably skip the intros when you listen to podcasts, which is why I'm being sneaky and putting it in here. But I'll be quick. Three episodes per week with world-class specialists in small animal medicine, emergency critical care and surgery. Conversations, not lectures. Practical tips, pitfalls, updates, and hard-earned insights. It's not about learning a bunch of things that you can easily find in a textbook. It is about digging for the bits of wisdom acquired over years and years of extra study and hundreds and thousands of cases. It's about you going from feeling unprepared and a bit rusty to feeling confident and pumped for the next time that that case comes through the door. Go and check it out at vvn.supercast.com. And while you're Googling, don't forget to visit hesca.com.au to find out ways to streamline your workflow and get faster, reliable in-house results. Does your business have a an official mentoring program? Because that sounds amazing. I love what you described there. That's, that's such a privilege to have access to that. Or is that just you being forward thinking and you set your own thing up? <laughs> a lot of it was just me when I first, um, well, basically my practice is owned by a corporate and the corporate does now have their own mentorship program. But for myself in that practice, that was something that I set up myself. And a lot of it actually came from listening to another podcast, which I'm going to shout out the 7S Society, which they're, right now they're a little bit quiet, but they talked about doing a mentorship clause in your contract. And I was like, ooh, this sounds new and interesting and a way to really circumnavigate a lot of the issues that people have with getting mentorship in their first job. And so I then reached out to some of my own mentors and was like, hey, what do you think about this? What are things that I should add into it? And so we came up with a list of things. So when I approached this practice and we were actually negotiating my contract, I said, I want a mentorship clause in here. And they're like, what's a mentorship clause? (laughs) And I was like, well, let me tell you. (laughs) And that was kind of the big thing because they were like, well, I guess we really want this girl to work for us. So we're going to make this work. And we, we sat down together and we came up with a mentorship clause that is specific for myself in this practice. Um, there is a, a relative framework that you can use. I think AHA actually has a uh, American Association of um, American Animal Hospital Association has their own framework that you can use. But for veterinary students or new grads who are developing their contracts, like sit down, be intentional, like think about what your mentorship contract is actually going to look like because it holds you accountable as a new grad, but it also holds your mentor and the entire practice accountable for how you're going to grow and how you're going to develop. Because the thing that irks me the most, well, not the most, but definitely, is seeing new grads come into a practice, being promised mentorship, and then leaving six months later dissatisfied and angry with the profession because they their experiences and the realities of what happened did not match the the, the basically the goals and um, that were set up at the start. So usually it's either the practice didn't uphold their end of the bargain or the veterinarian, the new grad mm-hmm. didn't uphold their end of the bargain. Yeah. They're equally accountable. Yeah. So when you have this mentorship clause there and you set up timeframes to be like, all right, in one week, we're going to meet in two weeks. We're going to meet in three months. We're going to meet in six months. We're going to meet. It holds both of you accountable so that both of you, you and the practice can t- can continue to grow and develop and make this profession better. All right. 
I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> no, I absolutely love that. And I, I, the accountability from the mentee is such a key component. I've, I've been in mentorship roles where you try and you go, look, it's probably time we catch up again. Or what are your goals? I don't know. I just want to survive the first year. Well, that's not specific enough. That's not. No, you know, that's not good enough. You need to set, set your goals. I'm not going to set them for you. Uh, so I love your approach and you're so proactive about it. And then having that accountability with somebody to say, because we all go into it going, yeah, I want to get better this year. I want to learn X, Y, and Z. If it's just up to yourself, like you say, life happens, practice is busy. It's very easy for it to, for very, very good reasons to just fall by the wayside. But if you have that person who's a little bit on your case saying, yeah, but have you done that yet? You made a promise to mm-hmm. me. Let's do that. That's a, I'm going to have to, I'll put the show notes. I'll look for that mentorship guideline that you can put in your in your uh, that clause in your contract, and we'll put it in the show notes because I think that's really valuable. Mm-hmm. Wow. And you can literally modify it to whatever you need in your practice. Because obviously, a new grad in equine is is not going to need the same thing as a as a new grad in small animal or an emergency or maybe you're doing an internship. Like all of these things are going to be very different. But having a framework that says, you know what, these are the main areas that I want to get better at. This is how often I want to meet. And these are the expectations that I want you to hold me to and, I, and that I want to hold you to so that in three months, you can look back on it and say, you know what, maybe you're not as satisfied with your job. And you can both sit down and say, you know, maybe it's because neither of us held up our end of the bargain or we were we ha- we set too high of an expectation. How do we reevaluate this? Because as a new grad, like honestly, a practice is dumping money into you. You're slower. You're not as knowledgeable. Your skills are pretty crappy compared to everybody else to a degree. Um, so they're technically losing some money by hiring you versus a well-experienced veterinarian. Um, so for them to lose you after six months to a year, that is money down the toilet. And so it's actually to their advantage to try and mentor you as best that they can, not just as like an assigned mentor in your practice, but everybody's got to be on board with having a new grad or else it's it's not going to work out. So I, I'm getting on my soapbox again, so I'm going to... I like I like soapboxes a lot on the podcast. That's what they're for. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very curious. You had the podcast while you were a student for a couple of years, that's right. Uh, and you had all these conversations with vets about what life as a veterinarian is going to be like and how to how to deal with it and how to be ready for it and how to thrive as a veterinarian. Was there still anything that when you started working that sort of blindsided you that you went, shit, I did not see that coming? And whether this is a, in a bad way or, or a good way? I don't think there was anything that particularly blindsided me in such a way that was like, man, I wish someone had talked to me about that. Mm. Because honestly, the thing that blindsided me was something that no one has ever experienced, which is a global pandemic. (laughs) So in that respect, no one could prepare us for this. No one could prepare us for the instant curbside that existed and having to talk to clients on the phone. Um, No one could prepare us for how the speed of practice would just be absolutely different and how caseloads would be much higher and everyone would be more stressed. So in that respect, like no one could ever prepare us for it. But the things that the podcast did help me prepare for was really focusing in on my non-medical skills, honestly. So talking about client communication skills, um, life management skills, those are the areas that the podcast, like by doing the podcast, really opened my eyes to the fact that, sure, vet school's great. Vet school's this white ivory tower that's going to teach me a lot of skills that I need in order to survive my first year out in practice. But vet school can't do everything. And that is where the like the podcast allowed it for me. And I was like, dang, I need to share this with everybody else because there are so many skills that we as, well, as veterinary students need to be exposed to. They're not going to learn it perfectly, but they need to be exposed to before they launch out into practice so that they have the building blocks to be successful when they are blindsided by a freaking pandemic. So while I could not have been prepared for it, I definitely had the skills to say, all right, what are the areas that I need to lean on? What are the areas that I need to grow and develop on Um, so that I could be successful and come out the other side of it? Granted, we're not through it yet, 
but come out the other side and A, I'm still at my first practice a year and a half later. Yeah. Not many of my colleagues can say that. Really, eh? Yeah. Not that many have shifted within the first yeah. year. Why? Is that good selection or is it, do you feel that you have a skill set that, that allows for that? It, it's multifactorial, the reason that I'm I'm still where I am. I definitely, I want to like put the disclaimer that it's not because I'm, I, I'm not special by any means. Like, trust me, I'm super average when it comes to veterinary medicine. But I know in talking to my colleagues who have left their first job and who have started a new job, a lot of it comes down to the things that I'm super passionate about. And part of the reason I'm passionate about it is because I saw this happen with my friends, like the people that I went through vet school with, I see them struggling with it now. And I'm like, I don't want that to happen to anybody else. Like, what are, what are we going to do? Like I'm a millennial veterinarian, like, and everyone's kind of realizing that the millennial vets and the people that are coming after me are going to be the ones that like change the profession. At least that's the way I want it to be. Um, so the reason that they left, a lot of it was a mentorship or a mentorship that was promised and never delivered because either side of the agreement didn't hold up their bargain. And that's like the main reason is like they went into these jobs and were like, hey, we're going to give you mentorship. Hey, we're going to give you this kind of schedule to start out. Hey, we're going to like, this is what practice life is going to look like. And then they were like, yeah, no, we don't have the time for that. So you're just actually going to work the schedule and you're not going to have mentorship and practice is going to look completely different. I want you to work on these hours. And so they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. Like looking at my friends, they're really good at choosing what they want in practice. And so now that they have, they went through that first experience of a bad, like a bad fitting practice for them. The second round, they were like, no, I'm a lot more, I'm going to put my foot down on these things that are important to me. I know what's important to me. And they were able to choose that in the practices that they're now at. And most of them are a lot happier as a result. So I think a lot of it, I think I maybe have drifted away from the initial question, but a lot of the reason that they, they left their first practices was because they, they didn't get what they were promised essentially, but also they probably didn't truly know what it was that they wanted in their life in practice. And now they're, they're like, yeah, that was the thing I really wanted. And I didn't hold my ground near as well. But then equally so, I think I like I, I learned, I searched long and hard for the practice that I'm in. And granted, it's not a unicorn practice. Like, like that's, that's one thing I want people to understand. It's mm. not a unicorn practice. Yeah. It has its own issues, yeah. but granted, cause every practice has their own, yeah. but I definitely went into this practice and said, you know what, like these are the goals and aspirations that I have for my career as a veterinarian and as a non-veterinarian. Are you going to support me in those? And how are you going to support me in those dreams? And initially, I think they were kind of like, yeah, this girl's a little bit weird <laughs> because she's so dead set on these things. High maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit high maintenance. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm like, no, this is, this is what I want. This is, I'm going to put my foot down on these things. Granted, it doesn't mean that I have... I'm going to say no to everything. I'm definitely going to try and help out and build this practice. Because again, it's not just about me. It's about the practice that I'm in and saying, all right, where do I want this to go? Because when I sat down with the, the medical director at the time, the, he basically, we talk about our dreams and aspirations. He was like, what are your dreams and aspirations? And these are my dreams and aspirations for this practice. And how are you going to fit into this plan? So I think I also landed with a when I did my initial interview, I, I landed with a, a medical director and a practice that aligned with my goals and aspirations. And I, I said no to a lot of practices that kind of said yes, but didn't fit as perfectly with this. So a little bit of a right time, right place, I think happened, but also a lot of hard searching and asking my mentors in my life to be like, like what's going on? What do each of these things mean? I definitely had a lot of long, hard conversations with some of them on the phone being like, I don't know what I need. I don't know what I want. Is this a good offer? I don't know what's going on. And uh, one of my mentors, he, um, I was talking with him recently and he basically was saying, he's like, yeah, there were a lot of conversations that we had. And I just kind of sat there and listened to let you talk because there was nothing that I could do to fix it. You just needed to get through the problem on your own. So <laughs> Uh, having those kind of mentors in your life is really important. And they, I, he honestly was like, yeah, it was a little bit like, okay, she just needs to pick something like pick a practice. Come on. Yeah. So. 
You said so many important things there. I think from your, what you did well there is that you were clear on your goals and aspirations, um, which can be hard. When you fresh out, you don't always know what exactly mm-hmm. you want. And then people panic about that. Well, I I was gonna, I was about to say, I certainly didn't know what I wanted. I still don't 100% know what I want. But maybe partially also knowing what, what you definitely don't want is to at least say, well, that's not it. I'm not sure about these, but I think I want to go for this. And then let's let's aim for that and then adjust as you go. But what you just said there, that story you told, I think it's so important for for practice owners as well or directors or managers because the retention of veterinary staff is such a big issue. I personally think globally at the moment that's the issue is recruitment and mm-hmm. re- recruitment Agreed. and yeah. retention. We used to be when in back in my day it was all about getting the clients and we need more clients. We have to high high patient care and better client care. At the moment, I personally think that finding vets and keeping vets is probably your number one priority as a, as a practice because the others can't happen if you don't have that in place. And I really liked what you said there, or that you have such a clear reason for why people leave. And it's not that it's not a perfect practice because, as you said, there's there's no perfect practice. I've personally worked in, if I count locoming shifts, in over 20 practices in three continents. I've not found the perfect practice yet because you have a system that's got a lot of variety and a lot of change and a lot of randomness with humans who are limited human beings trying to run it to the best of their ability, and which means there's always going to be problems. So if you're looking for the unicorn practice, you're never going to find that. You've got to find the one that ticks the boxes and then you've got to bring your part as well. And I love what you bring to it is that you don't expect perfection, but you are willing to work towards perfection. You are part of the solution instead of just rocking up and saying, well, I want this you can't give me this, I'm out. Whereas you say, well, no, you align our values and let me work in this practice to build the practice that I want to be part of. But the the reason why people are leaving, that's that's quite an eye-opener for me. It's that lack of fulfilling expectations. Don't set expectations that you can't meet. Practice owners, don't set expectations that you can't meet. It's going to erode trust. And trust is such an important thing for staying of the business if you, if you go well you guys have betrayed my trust you promised me something you couldn't deliver i can't stay here that's probably really important mm-hmm. absolutely well we could almost stop there that's good <laughs> but we're not gonna <laughs> <And> stop <end. laughs> there's um, there's so much more to discuss uh, i want to talk about practical survival skills that you've learned mm-hmm. over the last year for for because again you went into this with your eyes open you knew what you were expecting I will ask one specific question, first of all, just because it's a common thing. You are a young female vet with high demand clients. Have you come across issues with looking young and, you know, the whole, oh, are you too young to be a vet? Are you even a vet? Is it something that that young female graders still bump into quite often? Certainly in my day, they did. Yes, it it certainly is something that I've come across and not near as often as some of my friends have honestly like I've had the conversation with them to be like like do you do you deal with this and some of them do actually see this probably on the weekly and a lot of it has to do with the clinical environment that they're in maybe they have a overpowering senior veterinarian who is an older male and maybe erodes the trust that clients have in their and the other veterinarians so that's probably one of the main reasons that it happens is they're so used to seeing doctor so and so for so many years and then this this new fresh-eyed uh, veterinarian rocks up into the room being like, hello, how are you? And they're like, oh, you're not the veterinarian like that I've seen for the last 20 years for my five other dogs. Like, who do you think you are? And to a degree, that's kind of fair. Like, new person, you don't know what their experience is. But I feel that the practices, like in my practice, like we have a system where everyone's always building up the trust of another veterinarian. If we notice a small mistake that was made, we don't erode the trust that the client has in that veterinarian, we try and figure out what their thought process was. So to go back to the initial question, because I definitely <laughs> sidetracked there a little bit. Um, I've only, I can honestly name the number of times that I have faced that on one hand in my last year and a half. Um, the first one was because it was actually the first two times was because it was a long-term client that had really only seen 
the other veterinarian, it was a very high value animal the first time. And so rightly so, they want the best of the best. The second time was just a very, very needy client that everybody in the practice kind of walks on eggshells around. And so when they were, they literally told me, you know what, I just want the oldest, most experienced vet to neuter my dog. Like, that's just what I want. I don't want anybody else to do it. And how long have you been in practice? And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, you want the other vet? I'll go get them. <laughs> so I don't really want to deal with you either. Um, <laughs> clients don't listen to this, right? Um, so that was the other time. And then the third time it was almost joking, but at the same time, I'm like, don't joke about this. It's not, it's not funny to me type of scenario. But again, it was like three times that this has ever happened to me. I'm curious why, why do you say, so you've said that it's because of the practice environment where there's support from the senior vets to put you forward as a capable colleague and not just the new grad. Mm -hmm. Do you think you do anything differently in how you present yourself, how you approach clients that minimizes, if you say your friends experience it all the time, is there something that, that you think helps to stop that? Yeah, I would like to dive into that question deeper with my friends just to see what their experiences are. I think a lot of it is the the trust that happens with senior veterinarians in the practice that leads to it. But there certainly is something to be said about how you present yourself as a veterinarian. And that was something I actually did an episode with Dr. Kirsten, um, Kirsten Rongren um, about this very topic. And we talked about how we present ourselves to our clients makes a huge difference, whether you have been out five years, 10 years, or one year. I mean, you can take the veterinarian who's been out 10 years and you tell them to act like a act like someone who doesn't know what they're doing, um, have shifting eyes, maybe like peer into the room and be like, hi. Like if you, if you talk like you aren't confident, then the client already reads that you aren't confident. So for myself, I don't try to present myself that says I'm overconfident in any sort of way. I just talk about things matter-of-factly, and I try and dress in a professional manner. I wear, like, good scrubs when I go in. Um, I When I did my bio, I did not – I purposely did not include my year of graduation um, because our new clients get a file that has all the information on all the veterinarians, and I did not want them to be like, oh, she's the new vet. <laughs> so from that respect, I, I tried to avoid and put myself out there in such a way that they can't really give me a reason to be less experienced or they can't give me a reason to ask that question. And then in the one case, in the couple cases where I have been that been asked that I just deflected away. Cause I'm like, I'm not even gonna, like, I'm not going to entertain this idea that I'm less experienced, that you should look down on me in any way. I'm just going to be like, Hey, we're going to talk about the issues that here. And like, great. You asked me that question. Deflect. Boop. Gone. <laughs> yeah. Gold. We had one of our, Early, early guests was Dr. Brooke, who at the time was a was a new grad, uh, and she she had a great tip. She said she walks into a consult and introduces herself as, "Hi, I'm Dr. Brooke. I am the veterinarian who mm -hmm. will be taking care of your animal today." Because I've literally had I've had when I managed the practice, I had some younger female vets. And clients would say, well, "I never even." I had one client complaint where they said, "I never even got to see the vet." I just, I, was, I just had a nurse. So I go, well, that she wasn't wearing a name tag, obviously, that said her name. She never actually said that I'm a veterinarian. So they thought they just saw the nurse. The nurse did a consult. And so there's obviously a failure there of, of how you come across, how you're making sure that everybody understands what your mm -hmm. role in the, in the relationship is. Other tips for practically surviving? I mean, this, I'm thinking of stuff like how do you – I remember as a new grad, I was shocked about how physically exhausted I was just being on yes. your feet all day. Because you go from a student sitting in her ass all day studying to now I'm standing <laughs> for 10 hours a day running around yeah. to the lab. So stuff like that or even scheduling or prioritizing your day because you've got all the stuff coming at you from all sides and it can cause complete mm -hmm. melting. Have you got any, any other things that you've learned over the last year that – Absolutely. So from the health and wellness standpoint, like, yes, I was sidelined at how exhausted I was going to be as a new grad vet. Because of course, you go through vet school in clinics where you literally are like sun up to sundown, maybe overnight, you're doing shifts. And you're like, I don't know how I could be even more tired than this. And now I'm like, Oh, dear goodness, take me back to vet school. <laughs> like, this is so hard <laughs> from that respect. But 
Um, I mean, my hat is off to the people who come out of vet school with families and go right into working because I'm like, I'm tired and all I'm taking care of is myself. So having to take care of other people and their family, they, they're the people that you should talk to about how to manage life and, and scheduling. But from my standpoint, one of the big things that helped me transition into clinical practice was in a way when I was in vet school, I tried to be forward thinking in that I knew what I was practicing in vet school and how I took care of myself and how I talked about myself. And in that sort of way was a practice for when I launched out into the quote unquote, the real world. So I, I took up running when I was in vet school, learned just how much I loved it. Um, also just how much I, I needed to be in nature and away from city life, just to take care of my own mental health, my own physical health. And also trying to learn, um, like meal prepping has been a lifesaver. These past few weeks for myself, I will honestly say I have visited Chick-fil-A and Chipotle way too many times, but uh, trying to get back on the meal prep train <laughs> to, to keep myself uh, a little bit healthier here, just because I have been so utterly exhausted. I remember in, in, I worked in the UK shortly after graduating, so I went there all by myself, lonely, depressed, had long days of work, no meal prepping, so I'd walk into the the Morrison supermarket and literally eat as I walk down the aisles <laughs> and just take the empty packets to the checkout and it will be cakes and donuts. And yeah. I'm just shoving my <laughs> it's like, I don't know what I'm eating, but it tastes good. And I'm, the, I need the sugar. I haven't quite hit that level, but trust me, there are days where I am, I'm so ready to do that. <laughs> but yeah, learning how to take care of myself with what I'm eating, how I'm exercising, getting enough sleep, like all of these basic life things Practicing that in vet school when you think things are hard will really set you up well for when you go out into practice, even though there's going to be new challenges, you're going to be even more exhausted. But if you've practiced those little tiny basic things, it sets you up for better success than if you hadn't in the first place. So for myself, I, I have a bike that I get out and I do miles on. I go running. I just go and sit outside if I have the opportunity I try to make meals that are healthy. Sometimes that fails miserably, but as I try. And then also just looking at it from the aspect of like in vet school, you're so dead set on getting through the next exam, getting through the next rotation. Like, what do I need to do for me? Me, 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 me. But once you launch out into practice, you realize just how much you can't just focus on yourself. In order to fill your own cup, you honestly have to spend time with other humans preferably other humans that are not in the veterinary profession, because they will be the ones that that help fulfill other areas of your, of your life. So having your friends to just go and grab some drinks with or go on a trip with or having family nearby is immensely helpful. It's better for you in the long run. And practicing those life skills of building relationships. And it's hard work keeping those relationships up. Like it's not just, oh, you have some friends, but you have to actively think about, hey, I should text so-and-so. Hey, I should check in. Hey, let's go get a drink. Like you actively have to think about these things. It's not going to come easy or else you're going to get three months out and you're going to be like, huh, I haven't heard from that person. I wonder if they're going to text me. Like, no, they're not going to text you. You have to text them. Just go ahead and do it. You'll be better off in the long run for maintaining those relationships in so many more ways than one. But I feel like that's a whole topic that we could go on to um, here. So what are like, I'm kind of curious from, from your angle and aspect, um, after being out so many years, like how much of what I'm saying do you feel holds true? And what would you add to that? As I'm going to turn this turn this around. Now you're going to be interviewed. Um, what would you recommend for someone in my stage to like add to that? I think you're doing spectacularly well. I wish I had your wisdom when I was one year out. Like like I just said to you, I, I failed miserably in all of those. Look, it's it's circumstantial to some degree. I I chose to leave my home country, leave behind all my friends, go out on my own, new country, new job, new career. So of course I was going to take some strain. But I did zero of the forward planning that you said. Yeah, it was just I'd learned as I went, and it was five years in where you go, I'm really unhappy. Why? What should I be fixing? Whereas preventatively going in and saying, well, listen to other people who say your relationships are the key thing, isn't it? That's that's the one thing. What am I going to do about that? And then scheduling it, as you say, not just think about it, schedule it. Say 
Thursday afternoon, I phone a friend. I have a list of friends. And then the the health and wellness component, which is such common sense stuff, isn't it? You don't have to tell anybody. You have to eat healthily. You have to exercise. Drink water, but right? Exactly. But we all fail at that because you go, yeah, it's so <laughs> yes. simple. There's got to be some other hack, some other secret that will make me thrive mm-hmm. or be better. No, sleep enough, eat enough, exercise enough. It's as simple as that. It really is. And and to do that sometimes, sometimes the key to that is just discipline. It is just yeah. discipline. As a, as a 20-year-old, you, to me, discipline didn't come naturally. You think you can stay up and watch TV until one in the morning before a shift and then you wonder why you're cranky and unfocused and shitty the next day and why work sucks. Work doesn't suck. I just wasn't on my game because I'm undisciplined. I haven't eaten well, I haven't exercised in three days and I haven't been sleeping well enough. Big surprise, why am I miserable? <laughs> so it, took me, it took me much longer to learn these things than you. So those are sort of the basic building blocks, the stuff that, you know, the foundations that you need. But then the other thing that I'm learning or have been learning or trying to learn in the last five years or so of my career is it's around mindfulness, I suppose. And as soon as you say mindfulness, people when they run a mile, they think incense and hippies. But I don't mean that sort of mindfulness. I just mean the realization that what you're experiencing and how you are, how you're feeling, how happy you are, how content you are, how you're reacting to the things that happen in your life and then in your work life specifically, that it's in your head to, to a very large degree. Yes, we are we react to stimuli, we have emotions and hormones and things that affect how we feel in the short term. But in the long term, what we do with that is within our power, to some degree, is a decision. Again, if I look back to my early years, I had very much a, a victim mentality. I felt really trapped and at times regretted my career decision and didn't like my job but then instead of trying to improve the situation I am or making a decision to change completely I would often just be stuck um, or try and run away and find the next practice where things are going to be better but you just take what is in your head with you everywhere you go so that's been a big thing for me Um, I wouldn't say by any means that it's something that I've mastered. I don't think hardly anybody ever masters this, but just to be aware of it so that when you are stuck in those stories and those loops of this isn't working for me or I hate my job or what a terrible client or what a horrible day, how you respond to that is within your capability to control. I think that's something that's well worth working on. Um, But again, that builds very much on the basic building blocks. If you are underslept or haven't eaten well or you're exhausted, all of that becomes so much harder that emotional regulation just becomes heaps more of a challenge. So it's sort of one on top of the other. Um, where are we? Now I'm a little bit lost after all of that. We got sidetracked. Bunny trails, that's my profession. All right, let's talk about looking forward. We talk about a good story is one with unexpected twists where people want to know what's next. So what's next for Mariah? I know you loved Edinburgh. You had the UK link there. Can you talk about what's ahead for you or what you think your, the next five years for you will look like? Hmm, my next five-year plan, it changes to a degree depending on what week you talk to me. A lot of times I'll, I will say, hey, I have this big plan. I'm going to go and change my direction completely. And then about five minutes later, I walk back into the room and I say, you know, Let's think about this before we make a big life decision. (laughs) There was a spin where I was like, you know what? I'm going to go into emergency medicine. Just going to do it to build out my skills. And then I quickly sat down and said, hmm, maybe not yet. Let's focus on some other areas in, in, in medicine before I quite do that. But in a more general sense of where I want to go in the next five years in a clinical setting, right now my plan is to stay where I am in in practice but to build out the areas of supporting new graduates and veterinary students because, hello, global pandemic, no one has ever been through it. They need as much help as they can possibly get. And there is a lot to be said about the experiences of people who are their peers, as well as pulling together the people who are coming up behind them and the people who are way more experienced and knowledgeable than them. And that kind of goes into the plus, minus, and equal style of mentorship where – 
essentially at any given time in your career, you should have someone who's plus more experienced or knowledgeable than you, minus less experienced or knowledgeable than you for you to mentor. And then you should also be mentored and be mentoring people who are on the same level. So your peers. And so I want to pull from that and in a way, like how trying to figure out what my picture will be, what is my role going to be in this plus minus and equal mentorship style for the current new grads and for the up and coming graduates and for the people who are not even in vet school yet, because these are the people that are the future of a profession that right now is screaming, we need help, but we don't know what help we need. So trying to figure out what my role is in that help is where I'm going in a general sense for these next five years. Did I explain that well? You did. That's an ambitious goal, but a very, very worthy one. It's my attempt, at least. I'm, I'm curious. You, you said you considered doing emergency. This is obviously just as an emergency vet. Yeah. Why not? What, what made you, why do you say not yet? I'm, I'm really the opportunity just... hasn't quite arisen for what I want to do in emergency. We have a couple emergency clinics that are in the area, but what I want and what I think I need as someone who would just be going from general practice into emergency, there just isn't that level of mentorship in the practices that are nearby me. So I would have to like completely up and move to go do emergency work, which I don't foresee myself doing for a long time, like as a long-term thing. It's just more of a, I want to build out my skills in that area. So if I had something that was right nearby and I could go and do a couple shifts every now and then and I really got along with the team, then that'd be perfect. But right now I've been putting feelers out into different practices and I'm like, yeah, no, we don't align. It's it's not the right time or the right place for me to do that. So maybe in the future, but right now it's just, it's not the right time. I think that's very valid. You definitely don't want to stumble into emergency in a practice that can't support you. I know the, the emergency practice I ran did not have the, we did not have a good mentoring program. It wasn't, would not have been suited for somebody mm-hmm. who wasn't experienced and comfortable and ready for it. So the wrong emergency practice will be terrible. Um, but you're right. It's a good place to learn. You learn a lot <laughs> like of I did stuff my first thoracocentesis this past week oh, awesome. and I, I spent a good like minute or two sprinting around the hospital being like, I need a senior vet to help me. Here we go. And I finally found my mentor and I was like, Hey, I need your help. Something inherently scary about sticking something into a thorax. There's that hesitation of, seriously, you know, there's a lot of important stuff in that cavity that yeah. you're about to stick this yeah. big needle in. There literally was a moment where I was like, I am so scared. And it was like, do it scared. Just do it scared. I mean, we got to do it. And so I did it. And I think afterwards I was like, oh, goodness, I did this thing. <laughs> so uh, I get little tastes of emergency medicine because of what my practice is able to provide. Mm-hmm. But to do that every single day, like every 15 minutes, I, I would need to really prepare myself to, to live that life or to do a couple shifts that way in order to be sustainable. Um, so right now, there just isn't the right place or the right time for me to go about it. But I do enjoy the, the challenge and the excitement of saying, hey, I just did a thoracocentesis and I saved this cat's life. So it's fun. Do it scared. That's good. I haven't mm-hmm. heard that. Yeah. I got that from a different veterinarian. So don't quote me on it. <laughs> That's cool. I'm going to quote you on it. <laughs> I'll correct the misconception that lots of people have for your sake and anybody else who is considering emergency but is is nervous about it. It's not all emergency, life and death, bells ringing, mm-hmm. sticking needles. Sometimes blood, it's blood a bad earache. Uh, exactly. I'd say probably 80% of Derm. 80% of it is GP stuff that's just out of hours. You can have very uh, bland shifts that nothing much exciting happens, then you get those moments of, of urgent things come. Well, I suppose it depends on the clinic. Yeah, it's usually like, oh, it's an ear infection. Oh, it's bloody diarrhea. Oh, it's a laceration repair. Eh. Bloody diarrhea is probably 60% of what you see. Uh, <laughs> and then, it's about 60% of what I see is GP anyway. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and you joke about earaches. That's midnight 1 a.m it's a very common concept oh yeah because That's what happens is right there yeah because they're going on for a week right? well the problem is like stuff the, the sort of midnight shift or the, the consult that's coming around about mid, well from 11 to about one the stuff that's keeping the owner awake so suddenly yep. the dog's scratching it's here it, it can't sleep so the owner can't sleep so they've got to come in 
So that's that's how it works. Like it's, it is. And now a, no one gets to sleep for another three hours yeah. while they wait in the parking lot. <laughs> in the par- yeah, we like. Like let's let's think this through, shall we? Alrighty, let's start landing this plane. Um, <laughs> our standard questions. Favorite podcasts, obviously that vet life, although you probably don't, yeah, I was going to say you don't listen to it, but when you edit it, you listen to it five times, so you're probably sick of it by the time <laughs> it comes. at least. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Beyond that vet life, have you got any other favorites that you listen to, veterinary or otherwise? I, d- I do, and it's not veterinary related at all yep. or in the least bit. Um, it's called the Colin and Samir podcast, and they talk about content creation and the creators in the social media sphere. So I learned a lot of stuff about like podcasting and, and what's going on outside of veterinary medicine just by listening to them. And they just they just bring a lot of energy to the podcast because they are two really good friends. So the energy between them two is just really exciting. And it, it for someone like me who's in vet med and is not in this area, it does continually ask that what's next question, mm-hmm. which keeps me entertained and keeps me going back to the podcast week after week. Right. All right, the one question, the wrap-up question. It sounds like this is going to be quite likely for you to be doing talks and speak to lots of new grads in some some way, shape, or form. But there's a global conference of some sort, and you've got all of the veterinary new grads of the world assembled looking for wisdom, and you've got a couple of minutes to share one bit of advice with them. What is Dr. Mariah McCauley's advice? So if I had all of the new grads of the world sitting in front of me, And I had three minutes to talk to them about something. Mm -hmm. Right now, the hot button topic is talking about why going into the veterinary profession is still the right choice for many of them. Because I've been getting so much kickback. I put a reel out or post out um, not too long ago asking like, hey, veterinarians who are in the world, if you could give yourself your your first year vet school self a piece of advice, what would it be? And so many people came back saying, don't do it. Don't, don't do go it. into veterinary medicine. And I was like, uh, excuse me. Like, I don't care if you were talking to yourself or if you were talking to the, the current new grads, because in a way you're talking to both right now, but you're kind of wrong <laughs> to say that to everybody and to just say, don't do it. Because the more that I probed into the question to say, okay, why are you saying that? It came down to a lot of the issues that we talked about, about practice not like coming up to the standards that were promised to them. Or some people were saying it was the clients or the emotional toll or the financial, the poor out financial outlook um, that they had. So there were certainly, it's multifactorial on so many levels, but Right now, you have veterinary students and new grads who are seeing all of this, and they're like, oh my gosh, being a veterinarian has been my dream my entire life, and now I'm hearing a ton of people say that it's terrible, I shouldn't do it, it's not worth it, and I'm like, no, 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 don't listen to that. Like, We need to have honest conversations about this, because I'm not going to say everything is rosy and unicorn butts and all that jazz. It's hard. It's super hard, and there's a lot of like systemic issues in veterinary medicine. However, it's not going to be like this forever. We're going to need veterinarians. So what are we going to do about it? And the only way, only way we can do something about it is if you become veterinarians, because what's going to happen if we don't have any more. So if I had three minutes to talk to them, it would be about having honest conversations, having tough conversations and setting realistic goals and expectations for themselves and for this profession. And now I'm realizing you cannot do that in three minutes. But that that would be my answer. I never said three minutes. I I suppose I said a couple of minutes. (laughs) A couple minutes. (laughs) Two minutes. There shouldn't be a time limit on it. That's really good. That's just going to be my soapbox. People. Go for it. You see all the social media going on about the veteran profession in crisis and there's so much negativity and all of this, and it's a it's a now problem. It's not a now problem. It's I, I mean I I decided to study veterinary science in 1994, and I went to he's one of my schoolmates. Dad was a vet in my hometown in South Africa, and I went to speak to him to get some advice about it. And he, what did he say? Don't do it. So this is not a new thing. There's been problems. There's a couple of key things around this. It's it's also not unique to veterinary science. You speak to anybody in any job. Work's work. Every industry has problems. 
the next thing is so much has changed for the better. I mean, the reason that that guy said don't do it were probably pretty valid, <laughs> but we've come a long way. So it's all the is the negativity is not it's not warranted. It doesn't mean that the problems aren't there and they don't need to be addressed. But it's getting better, and it's not going to get better overnight. But it will get better with your input, as you say. If you don't get engaged in it and work on improving it, it's not going to get better. Uh, there's another saying I read the other day that said, pave the way behind you, not ahead of you. So go go forward and do it, and there are going to be struggles, but make it better so that the guys who come after you don't have to have those same issues. We'll still have this conversation 20 years later. There's going to be problems in veterinary science. How do we make it better? Slowly. Yeah. But we make it better. So, yeah, that's my little soapbox again. Yeah, and how do we have those honest conversations when someone comes to you and says, hey, I want to become a veterinarian. Do you think I should do it? Instead of saying, yes, go for it or don't do it. Like what? Let's actually have the conversation to say, why do you want to become a veterinarian? What's been your experience? What like, <laughs> like, like let's really dive into this because like it is a lifelong thing that you're going to delve into. Like this is going to be what you do for probably the next 20, 30, 40 years of your life. So we want to help guide you as you make that decision, but then also opening up the avenues because I feel so many people, they they didn't have this conversation. They either had someone who said, don't do it, or they had someone say, yeah, go for it. But they never really had the opportunity to discuss the avenues that were available, the type of changes that they could make in their career. And the fact that the typical GP nine to five was not the only option. The number of people that don't realize that or they think that they're stuck in it, whether that is from their own decisions or for or from life circumstances, and they just don't have the tools or the resources available to them or they don't know about the tools and resources to take the profession that they're in and make it what they what they need and want it to be. I think a lot of those people who who have that response to say, don't do it, you're right, they, they are talking to themselves. And for some of them, they probably shouldn't have done it. It's not for everybody. Yeah. Or let's say veterinary clinical practice probably isn't for everyone. So it's it's not an unfair thing to say. No, it's an unfair thing to say. Don't say don't do it. Say go do it, but do it with your eyes open. That's yeah. it. By, or your ears open by listening to that Vet Life podcast or the Vet World. <laughs> <laughs> oh, put that one right in there. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it there, Mariah. This has been so much fun. We should do it more often. Yeah, I think so. Thank you so much for having me. It was a ton of fun. I want to check in with you and see how the journey goes every year. <laughs> we'll do it. <laughs> do the year in review. Sounds like a good plan. Keep me accountable. <laughs>